Namaste and good evening. There is one teaching that really is at the center of our practice that you've probably noticed um, kind of as a theme or the stream that moves through, which is that it doesn't matter what is happening. All that matters is how we're relating to it. I mean, it really doesn't matter what the diagnosis we get or the, um, you know, what happens with the job or the relationship. We will suffer if we relate to the changes in our life with reactivity. And we won't suffer if we arrive right here in presence. And when I say arrive in presence, there are depths of presence. I don't mean like a glancing blow at presence. I mean like we really, really arrive. So Rumi says this, do you pay regular visits to yourself? Do you pay regular visits to yourself? Don't argue or answer rationally. Let us die and dying reply. I like the inquiry. Do you make regular visits to yourself? But what does he mean by let us die? In my way of understanding, in order to arrive here at home in this moment, there is always a continual releasing or surrendering of the fixation into thoughts. We're dying to the trance. We're, we're letting go of this conceptual reality, this virtual reality that we hang out in, the story that we hold tight to give us an orientation. We're dying to the small self that we're identified with in order to arrive in a, in a sense of beingness or wholeness. And it's over and over again. I mean, to really visit ourselves, to really come home into the moment, there's a letting go. One of the first retreats I was at, I think it was the very first retreat, very early on, um, someone gave that classic kind of Zen-like setting of a man is chased by a tiger and he kind of plunges over the edge of a, of a precipice and he's hanging onto this vine and he calls out, help, help, is anyone there? And um, there's a voice that says, yes. And he goes, God, yes, help, I'll do anything. And God says, let go. And the guy goes, is anyone else there? (laughs) And of all the jokes I've heard over decades now at these talks, and this one stuck with me because we will do anything before we'll let go. Anything. We'll take any back door we have. Um, You know, we bicycle away from presence. And the more stressed, the faster we bicycle. And, you know, we listened last night to Pat's talk, and it's like when the energies arise that are difficult, you know, we will try anything we can before we'll just simply stop and let be anything. We're always trying to control things. Have you noticed? Yeah, okay, okay, so I'm not alone in this one. So the path of transformation, which is really what we're exploring together these handful of days, is really about bringing a wise attention. It's how we pay attention. And what I'd like to explore with you tonight are three essential gateways to presence that I find is kind of a hub that has really served me on my path. And they are brought out very well in an ancient Indian teaching story that I'd like to share. Um, I like to reflect on it periodically. You might remember it from a few years ago. Um, So let me read a little bit to you, and um, then we'll explore these three gateways. So this is a story of a young man, Nachiketa, and the way he came to stand face-to-face with death. And after he lost several friends, he became aware of the brevity of life. 
and the shallowness that comes from pursuing just exclusively worldly pursuits. And he was a son of a rich merchant, and uh, he had a very strong reaction when his father was encouraged by the Brahmin priests of the community to make a grand donation to the temple in order to ensure a good rebirth in the afterlife. He was appalled by the idea that virtue and merit could be purchased in a proud public display in town center while everyone in the town looked on. The day arrived, and the father says, I give my cattle, my gold, all the value to the priests of the temple. Nachiketa goes, all you value? Ha! What about me, your son? So his father's publicly shamed and offended, and Nachiketa's father responded angrily, I give you as well. I give you to death. A little family conflict here. <laughs> so Nachiketa's eyes blazed, and he replied, I accept, and he left. So Nachiketa went to a remote spot in the deepest forest and sat waiting for death to show himself. For three days and three nights he sat there intent and motionless, determined to face death in a spiritual quest. Sitting through hunger, pain, and exhaustion, Nachiketa came at last to the land of Yama, the king of death, who is also known as the keeper of accounts. There he was greeted by death's three assistants, pestilence, famine, and war, who explained that Lord Yama was away. He's out collecting rent. <laughs> That's fine, Nachiketa says. I'll wait. When death returned three days later, his assistants told him of this most unusual young man who had come seeking him. Welcome to my kingdom. I see you are a man intent on his journey. Alas, I've kept you waiting. I will make up for the three days you waited by offering you a boon. You may choose three blessings for your journey. During the time of journeying and waiting, Nachiketa had entered a luminous state of mind, and he recognized what he most needed to ask for to go on. The first boon Nachiketa requested was forgiveness for himself and all he had touched. Let my father look upon me with the same joy as the day I was born. Nachiketa knew that only by releasing his past, by reconciling with all that was incomplete in his heart, could he continue his journey. So he knew he couldn't put his father out of his heart if he was to continue onward. So reunion with life is the blessing granted by forgiveness. And the boon of forgiveness left Nachiketa's heart open and clear. So Lord Yama gave him this first boon. Your first boon was a wise one, Nachiketa. Now what will be your second? Speak. After a moment of silent reflection, Nachiketa spoke. I ask the blessing of inner fire. Inner fire. Nachiketa knew that to succeed on his spiritual journey, he would need both ardor and courage to follow the path with his whole being. So Nachiketa asked for the strength to give himself fully to the quest. Inner fire is wholehearted energy, spiritual passion, shakti, the full aliveness of being. Another word is devotion. It's the devotion or passion that lets us really give ourselves to what matters. So again, Lord Yama honored Nachiketa's wisdom and blessed him with this inner strength, this devotion. Free from the restrictions of old conflict, through forgiveness, and filled now with the limitless energy of aspiration, Nachiketa had found much of what is necessary to pass through initiation, through these transformations of awakening. Finally, Lord of Death looked, asked Nachiketa to name his last boon. After reflecting, Nachiketa looked at Death and said, I ask for that which is immortal. With some surprise, Death reminded this audacious young man that he had come to the last boon and he could choose anything. Lord Yama then conjured up visions of what Nachiketa might choose instead, a harem of beautiful maidens to travel with on his journey, a royal golden war chariot with the world's fastest steeds, a palace where Nachiketa would be king. Nachiketa viewed all these and more. Why not choose among these, death urged again. But Nachiketa was a determined youth, not easily led astray. And so when he questioned, then he questioned the visions. Will not all of these things that you have shown me return soon enough to your own kingdom, Lord Yama? The Lord of Death smiled at Nachiketa's understanding and answered, Yes, it's true. Then I asked to know that which is immortal. 
At this, Lord Yama said, I will grant your third boon. He handed Nachiketa a simple yet extraordinary gift, a mirror. If you wish to find the secret of immortality, Nachiketa, I cannot help you more than this. You yourself must look directly into yourself. Then you must repeatedly ask yourself the greatest of all human questions. Who am I? Look beyond your body and thoughts, Nachiketa. In this way, you will find what you seek. Whether it is enacted in initiation or in meditation, we too must face Lord Yama. We must ask who it is that is born and dies. As Nachiketa gazed into the sacred mirror, he entered into the profound spiritual questioning that leads to the deathless. When everything he held was released and stripped away, a pure and timeless heart arose. Nachiketa was free. So let's just take a little time together tonight to maybe unfold the elements of this story and really what it begins with is what brings us all to the spiritual path is some form of a disenchantment or disillusion where we become aware of change we become aware of the fact that it's fleeting I've spoken with uh, several of you here that even just recently in the last six months eight months year have in some way more deeply registered, this is happening fast, this life. It's, it's a flash. I don't want to waste time. I want to really be here for what matters. So there's a kind of a disillusionment that we're not immortal, we're not going to be here forever. But then it happens in much more... Um, disruptive ways where we get that we can't control things and that brings us to the path Um, it happens in such big ways in our life one person here uh, described her mother having a brush with death mortality cancer and that just the wake up and another um, niece horrible addiction and there's nothing she can do the, the pain of that and another whose job is threatened in a very it's a scary thing and another whose marriage recently collapsed and I could go on and on and pretty much name most of us here who have really gotten that it's not in control these bodies we can't control them so many of us here I, that's the big one for me it's just so obvious that I cannot control or predict or in any way direct what happens with this body And others, including myself, our minds and our memories, you know, it's just out of control. And it happens in in small ways, you know, and in large ways. And where this particular retreat, Jonathan got a bug and all of a sudden he had planned to be fully here. He got sidelined for a day. I think he'll be back tomorrow. But, you know, it's, it's out of control. And then we see it in our meditations. It doesn't matter what we have as an idea for a good meditation. You know, it just, the mind does what it does. As one person said, the mind has no shame. It just, you know, it just goes where it goes. It does what it does. We obsess, we get anxious, we get restless. It's humbling. One person writes, this life is a test. It's only a test. If it were a real life, then you would have been told and you would have been given more specific information about where to go and what to do. So, when we face Lord Yama, which is both in the big ways, we get the diagnosis, you know, life, something big falls apart, are in the day-to-day ways that we see that life is not cooperating. When we face Lord Yama, we have two choices. And one is that we can react, we can continue our strategies of fight and flight and, and, and believing our stories, which is right inside that. We can continue to buy into our stories. Or we can stop and turn towards refuge, towards true refuge, which is really another way of saying towards presence, towards love. We can relate to what's happening, not react to it. So this story 
gives us a sense of three of the archetypal capacities that support us in this latter choice of presence. Three archetypal capacities that allow us to take refuge in the face of death. And I think when we scrape beneath the surface, every one of us, whether we use the word safety or love or whatever, every one of us wants to find a way to live from our fullest given this changing, living, dying world. We want to live this life fully. We want to love without holding back. We don't want to be in a continual contraction where we're kind of defending against the inevitable. So these three capacities, the first one, the first boon that Nachiketa asked for was forgiveness. Now, it's much easier when we're very aware of mortality to forgive. Have you noticed with people that have been dying or if you're with a dying person, a lot of the pettiness falls away, doesn't it? Right? So it's a challenge when we're, when we're caught in this um, armoring and we're not remembering that we, you know, that we could go in any moment. Now, as I speak about forgiveness, so it's a little bit of a continuation of this afternoon. But you can also use the word acceptance. For some people, forgiveness just doesn't sit right, so I really invite you to go either way. But it has to do with letting go of our resistance to what's happening, our resistance to ourselves, to each other, letting go of our aversive judgments and stories. And there's a very good inquiry we can ask at any moment, which is really, uh, you know, how am I creating separation right now? How am I creating separation from my inner life in this moment? You know, when we ask that, we can find that there's usually some subtle place, uh, some subtle story of how we should be versus how we are. Have you noticed that some? That we have an idea of how we are supposed to be or should be. And there's always a gap between that and how we are. So that makes it so that we're not really at home in the moment. There's a separation. How are we creating separation from another person or from the group? I mean, you know, we can be here in this community, yet we mostly go around with a story This kind of that we're in this bubble and there's a self in here and then there's the group out there. Any of you have that sense? You don't have to raise your hands if you don't want to, but we go around in that sense. And it's a very deep conditioning to, and then we have our judgments and our possessiveness of space and our edginess and so on. How we create separation. So the challenge is, how do we start seeing our story? How do we stop and go, oh, okay. In this story of a self, an injured self, a striving self, a needy self, other is unreal, they're the ones that's causing trouble. How do we notice it and wake up out of it? It's not easy. I, I read you a bit. This is a, there were some letters Dear Abby admitted she was at a loss to answer. This way we blame. One person says, Dear Abby, I have a man I can't trust. He cheats so much, I'm not even sure the baby I'm carrying is his. <laughs> yeah. I like that. <laughs> Dear Abby, I've suspected my husband's been fooling around. When confronted with the evidence, he denied everything and said it would never happen again. (laughs) Dear Abby, my mother's mean and short-tempered. I think she's going through mental pause. (laughs) They go on. So we get upset. And when we get upset, we are programmed, this is the evolutionary conditioning Pat described, to lash out. In one story, Jake's dying. His wife sat at the bedside. He looks up and says weakly, I have something I must confess. There's no need to, his wife replied. No, he insisted. I want to die in peace. I slept with your sister, your best friend, her best friend, and your mother. (laughs) I know, she replied. Now just rest and let the poison work. So we're talking about forgiveness, and it's not so easy when we feel violated. 
I want to say again that forgiveness is not indulgence or permission. I mean, you can forgive and absolutely dedicate your life to making sure something doesn't happen again, to making sure that you don't act in a way that violates others or others don't. But the truth is, when we're living in resentment and blame, we're in a trance. And this is the point. No matter whether how right you feel, when you have made someone else wrong or bad, or you're making yourself wrong or bad, your world has contracted and you're living in a trance. A trance is a narrowed reality. When you're in blame, you're unable to see the vulnerability of the other person. See, I mean see, like really get it. And you're unable to see the sacred that shines through that being. You're just seeing a sliver of their, their acting out humanity. You're seeing how their suffering is getting played out. But you're not knowing that. You're just seeing the playing out and judging it. Similarly with yourself, when you're blaming yourself, you fixated on the difference between who you think you should be and what's happening, and you're not seeing the vulnerability that's there, and you're forgetting your own goodness. Joko Beck, Zen teacher, she says, our failure to know joy is directly related to our inability to forgive. So Nachiketa knew that to continue on the path, there had to be a letting go of the stories of blame. And this is something that's true for each of us. We can't force ourselves or will ourselves to forgive, by the way. And when there's been trauma, it's a very slow and it's a lifetime process. But we can be willing. And there's a real difference. You can be willing to engage in that process. And that's all that's needed. If your intention is to forgive, you've already opened the door. The light can start coming through. One man uh, came to retreat um, and told me the story, the background of his process. He, very emotionally abusive father, very controlling, judgmental, berating, often absent. And as his father got older, he was still kind of a bully and cynical, but he mellowed some and he liked to be with his grandchildren, so he tried to kind of, he made peace a little, but he was still pretty um, demeaning to his son. Um, Father had a heart attack and he slowed down more. And at that point, this man's sister said to him, can't you be forgiving? I mean, the guy's getting old. He just had a heart attack. And this man was outraged at the notion of forgiving. I mean, his response was, he'll never know how much suffering he caused. He'll get away with it. This is a big deal because part of our evolutionary inheritance is to get even and to seek revenge. I mean, we are wired to. Animals, many mammals do it. You're just getting back. So he came to retreat, and he came with that anger. And I asked a question I often ask, and you can, if you have a lot of anger, you can explore this yourself. It's not for the purpose of getting rid of anger, by the way. Anger has an intelligent, alive emotion. It's getting identified with the anger that causes trouble. So he asked the question, I, I asked the question I often do, which is, if you couldn't be believing your stories of his badness, what would you have to feel? I'll say it again for any of you that want to explore this one. If you couldn't believe the story of blame, this person's bad, they did wrong, they screwed me, you know, if you couldn't, what would you have to feel? And for him, it put him into the hurt and the grief of not having a father, really, that cared or that saw him. And he practiced, as we do often here, where he put his hand on his heart and he spent for many days, he just brought kindness to that place of hurt over and over again, over and over again. He'd feel the anger at his father, then he'd sense underneath that the pain and the grief, never having a father that would be with him. Hold that with compassion. Went back home and things shifted a bit. He started seeing his father through different eyes where he could actually see that his father's bootstrap personality was because he had been without any nurturance in his life and the message he had gotten was it wasn't safe to be vulnerable and you have to go out and make it. And his father had been afraid that he wasn't going to be strong and make it. So his father was always trying to toughen him up. It was out of fear. 
So he could see him more, and there was just the relationship started shifting. And um, when he'd come to be with the grandchildren, they had some nice moments too. He had another heart attack. So then this man was, during his recovery, keeping him company. And at one time, he was with him, reading to him. And his father all of a sudden said, stop, just stop reading. And then he said, I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. And there were long silence and tears. And then this man heard the words he never thought he'd hear, which is, you probably don't know how much I love you. The realization this man had was that by forgiving his dad, by holding him with compassion, it made it safe enough for his father to contact his vulnerability and his care. He made it safe enough. Now, it doesn't always happen that when we go through our own healing process of softening our hearts that another person comes around and that there's some happy ending in that way. But it always happens that when your heart's more free, there's some ripple on some level. In some way, it helps. I've had many, many people come to me when somebody's hurt them a lot, saying, how can I forgive them? And I almost always say, don't even bother trying right now. The first step is to be with your own wound with compassion. Always to hold ourselves first. The most challenging part of forgiveness, Nachi Keita's journey, you know, he talked about forgiving his father. Most challenging for most of us is forgiving ourselves. And the greatest truths are the ones we always forget. The most central that I run into is that if we've turned on ourselves, we can't love our world. I hear people say, well, I'm compassionate to other people, but not myself. I think it's a mental kind of compassion. For us to have a, a visceral felt sense of compassion, we have to have our own, this life right here at the center of the circle held in tenderness. And yet we add the second arrow, and for those of you that are unfamiliar with the language, the first arrow is whatever's going on, the fear, the hurt, the shame, the sadness. The second arrow is I'm bad for this happening. It's the blame. We add it over and over again. So partly what helps, and I think Pat spoke to this beautifully last night, is to really get that we're human animals and we were designed to try to protect ourselves and we were designed to aggress and we were designed to blame and we were designed to, you know, to contract into shame. I mean, we were designed these ways. This cartoon, which you won't be able to see, has a mouse in a mouse hole, and the mouse is a psychoanalyst. And the cat is on the, on the you know, kind of being psychoanalyzed. He's leaning against the wall outside the hole. And the, the mouse is saying, don't worry, fantasies about devouring the doctor are perfectly normal. <laughs> I do in my life um, what I've come to call kind of an impromptu forgiveness scan. And I do it regularly. And by that I mean on some way there's an inquiry of have I turned against myself? Am I down on myself in any way right now? And you can do that. You can just, if you want just this moment. And it's it's very interesting to stop and just ask in some way have I turned on myself? I know for myself when I ask that I immediately sense the shape of the ego, the shape of the self. I kind of sense the subtle kinds of egotism, my self-concern. I sense how many moments most of my computations have been about how do I get more comfortable or how do I finish this project so I'll feel better or I, 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 me, me, me. I immediately sense how much focus on self there's been and don't like it. I don't like being self-focused. I sense my irritability. I sense how I've been judgmental. I generally use the word forgiven, forgiven, because it helps me. It's just just the word itself on some level seems kind, and it kind of is like washing away the stickiness of what I've been holding against myself. You might take a moment, as I was just suggesting, and 
uh, just check in and and as you check in so this is the pause this is where we use this skillful means of stopping and as you check in you might sense today has there been any kind of attitude towards yourself you've been carrying around on how you're doing at the retreat Has there been any second arrows you maybe weren't noticing of not, kind of not liking yourself for either your self-concern or your um, maybe being judgmental or maybe you haven't liked yourself for the way you've been handling pain. Maybe you've been feeling like a victim. Maybe you've been obsessing. Is there any way you've been holding anything against yourself today? And even in these moments, as you notice it, just see if simply the noticing, the intention to notice and just forgiven, forgiven, not believing it so much. Seeing can be freeing. whether it's a conscious self-blame or an unconscious one, it divides us. It prevents us from really inhabiting our being, our wholeness. And it certainly prevents us from a tenderness with others. You'll remember from this afternoon, the words, be ground, be crumbled, so wildflowers will come up where you are. When we relax, blame, love flowers. So this is the first of the boons, and I think it's a precursor. I, I don't, I, in my own life, as, as soon as I remember forgiven, forgiven, then the rest of it can open up. The second capacity or boon that Nachiketa was requesting and given was inner fire and that's the love and interest in life that allows us to give ourselves wholeheartedly the love and interest that really lets us rally our energies and give ourselves to what matters you know some years ago I was uh, at a Dzogchen retreat a Tibetan retreat and in the middle a another Tibetan teacher that wasn't the lead teacher of the retreat happened to stop in. He was very well known. Some of you might have read the Tibetan book of living and dying. He was the author of that. I'm forgetting his name right now. But anyway, he drops in and he's asked to speak and he said just a few words. He said this, because I wrote it down. I don't have many qualities, but I do have devotion. It gives me confidence. Devotion is not for the teacher, and he gestured towards himself and our lead teacher, It is to open. Devotion is to express the tenderness and care of one's innermost heart. And he did have devotion, you know, and you could feel it. In fact, when you're with people and you notice, well, what lets you trust someone? It's that sincerity of heart. When when someone's really sincere about what matters. It's a kind of purity or an innocence. It's not torqued by guilt or by duty or trying to impress, not even not trying to meet the notion of a spiritual self. It's just a very pure sincerity. So we all have ways of closing off our inner fire. I mean, every one of us longs to love fully and live fully and wake up. We all long for that. But we have ways of closing off our inner fire. We get waylaid. Frost says, something we were withholding made us weak until we found it was ourselves. So there's an inquiry with the inner fire, which is really what is between me and giving myself, devoting myself to this practice of waking up or to loving relationship or to creative expression, whatever really matters, what is between me and really devoting myself. 
And if you ask that, if you say, well, what's between me and really giving myself to an intimate relationship that I'm in? Like really loving, really going for it. I really giving myself to the Dharma, to, to profound inquiry into the nature of truth, living truth. What's stopping me here from giving myself to this retreat? You know, when we ask those things, what we come up with is quite deep, which is fear. Some way, if I devote myself, I'm going to lose control over stuff or doubt. I can't. I don't have it in me. I won't get what I need. Doubt and fear. And then what happens is that out of doubt and fear, instead of giving ourselves to loving, to serving, to creating, we take false refuges. We obsess and we plan. And this is uh, Rumi. He says, gamble everything for love if you're a true human being. Half-heartedness doesn't reach into majesty. You set out to find God, but then you keep stopping for long periods at mean-spirited roadhouses. (laughs) Isn't that great language? (laughs) Mean-spirited roadhouses. So we get waylaid, every one of us. We get waylaid. And we know that... um, we can watch ourselves get waylaid here by worrying and planning and, and so on. And we can see it at home. How many moments do we spend presenting ourselves rather than just being with others? You know, in some way, trying to prove something or cover up something. My illustrative story here, a guy's dri- driving around the backwoods of Montana, he sees a sign in front of a broken-down shanty-style house, talking dog for sale. He rings the bell, and the owner appears and tells him the dog's in the backyard. The guy goes into the backyard and sees a nice-looking lab retriever sitting there. You talk, he asks. Yep, the lab replies. After the guy recovers from the shock of hearing a dog talk, he says, so, what's your story? Lab looks up and says, well, I discovered I could talk when I was pretty young. I wanted to help the government, so I told the CIA. In no time at all, they had me jetting from country to country, sitting in rooms with spies and world leaders, because no one figured a dog would be eavesdropping. I was one of their most valuable spies for eight years running, but the jetting around really tired me out. I knew I wasn't getting any younger, so I decided to settle down. I signed up for a job at the airport to do some undercover security, you know, wandering near suspicious characters and listening in. I uncovered some incredible dealings and was awarded a batch of medals. Got married, had a mess of puppies. Now I'm just retired. Guy's amazed. He goes back in and asks the owner what he wants for the dog. Ten dollars, the guy says. Ten dollars? This dog's amazing. Why on earth are you selling him so cheap? Because he's a liar. He never did any of that. (laughs) So we get waylaid. And we get waylaid in mostly um, trying to shore up our sense of self. Because we feel insecure. And in some way we need the world to... Uh, think good things of us. So the the practices that really help us to remember to not get so waylaid are remembering our intention. You know, I I have to share that Jonathan and I, um, we sometimes we'll do our own meditation, but we'll, at the end of it, we'll um, spend a little time and check in. And last week before, uh, before the holidays, uh, we were checking in on our aspiration for the day. And I was thinking, I was very aware of family coming in and so on. And mine was that, you know, I wanted to step out of my uh, hero child, over-responsible, busy self and really just be spontaneous with each person and just really open to the loving connection that was there and not be the older sister and all that. So I shared that with him and I, I said, and then it was his turn. And he said, well, I want to get a shitload of stuff done today. <laughs> That was, that was it, you know. He, so, so that's. A, <laughs> he's not here, but I'll let him know I said this. <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was going to share that. One of the ways we get waylaid is we think we're a self on our way somewhere, and that we have a little bit of time and a lot to do. 
We live in that story. Now, you might say, yeah, but it's true. You know, I do have a lot to get done. And, 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 and the reason it was fine for when he and I did this is he did have a lot to get done and it was fine. But it's a chronic, chronic storyline. And until we can start getting that life is short and it's precious and there is something in this tarrying, pausing, savoring that can free us, that we can't touch the holy if we're on our way somewhere else. Does that make sense? So the inner fire is that devotion that says, stop, don't get waylaid. Don't wait. Don't wait for your life, for something to happen. It's here now. Two ways of practicing, and one is let the practice of aspiration be, you know, with every sitting. Just start and sense, well, what really matters? What's the most important thing? And before meetings and other activities and so on, just to remember... But I also want to mention another level, which is when you hit those out-of-control times where things are falling apart, it's a very, very powerful opportunity to remember your longing. And I want to share um, a very, very dear friend of mine died a few years of breast cancer. And um, when she first realized the metastasize, we met, and she was very resolved to move through with presence. And she had a lot of inner fire. She really, really wanted to heal into death. And it got very, very difficult. And at times, it got so difficult that she said, I've lost my faith. I don't have faith. I don't have, there's not, being present, mindfulness, none of this works. I just feel like a separate self who's dying, who's filled with grief and who's miserable, and also who's lonely and also who's ashamed of, being, of dying, because it was kind of embarrassing to have a lot of people watch her die. So she didn't share her pain with others. She didn't want to let them down, and she was kind of keeping a spiritual front up. So we met and we started working with it and I asked her to get in touch with the part of her that was really afraid because that's what it was and was really lonely and she got in touch with that part and then this is really the pathway back home. What is that place in you most want, most need? When you start asking what is that place want or need, you start getting at aspiration, at inner fire again. And for her, she said, well, what it's saying is Please love me. Please love me. And I said, well, what would be the source of that love? Who are you saying it to? And it was her mother who had passed away. And I asked her what it would be like. Would it, what would it be like if that part that was saying, please love me, felt love? And so she started describing the warmth and the light and the feeling of being enveloped, feeling that there was a conscious presence that was here, that was, that was outside of her, that was loving her. And I'm sharing this because it's very important to know that there are times in our life that it really needs to be feel like an outside presence. There's nothing less good about that or less spiritual. We might ultimately discover that it, that outside presence is an emanation of our own awakened heart-mind. That doesn't matter. In the moment, it needs to feel like an outside presence. Does that make sense? Okay. For her, that's what it was. So she said out loud over and over again from her longing, please love me, please love me. So she was reaching out towards that conscious presence, please love me. And she, and, and she started feeling it and imagining it. And then she said, please love me one by one to certain friends. And then to the plant that was in the room and to the trees outside. And tell us, she described that the whole world was loving her. She was dissolving in love. She was the being that was loving. But it came from that inner fire, that longing, please love me. As you connect with longing and really inhabit it, you come into belonging. John O'Donohue says, prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. So this is what she was doing. And she, for the next months and months, she really practiced. She really stayed with that inner fire. And by the way, for her... 
even as her body's fire was dying, her, her spiritual fire became luminous, luminous. And it grew because she just kept coming back to, what do I really want? Love. I really want love. It's like Havi says, ask the friend for love. Ask him again. For I have learned that every heart will get what it prays for most. So this is inner fire that we're talking of. And we'll do a bit of a reflection for a moment, if you will, just to, to close your eyes. Because there's not a moment in your life that you can't tap into the what matters. And the more moments that you pause and ask, the more moments of homecoming. You can practice by just saying, you know, what in this moment matters most. Or you can sense the brevity of life, which is a really powerful, skillful means. You might even right now sense if you had a few minutes to live. And I I do this a lot with myself. If you had a few minutes to live and make it real that there's just a few minutes. It's not like you're going to be able to go and hang out with certain people or go to the mountaintop or go anywhere. Just right here you have a few minutes. What is it that's most important to realize or trust or experience? What most matters? If you were at the end of your life looking back, what would be most important to know was experienced or realized or manifested? The longing, whether it's for truth or love or realization, peace, whatever it is, the longing is the inner fire. And that's what energizes and guides you on the path. And so it was with Nachiketa that by facing the truth of mortality, that we just don't have that long, he was able to let go of the blame that divided him from others. He was able to awaken this fire, this devotion that could energize his path so he wouldn't be waylaid. And then we get to the third boon, okay, the third and final boon, where he asked Lord Yama, I want to know that which is deathless, that which is immortal. You know, I know this, this world that's right moment-to-moment changing, but what is it that is deathless, formless? And Lord Yama said, you must look into the heart of life itself and look into your own being, and he gave him a mirror. Now, when we start looking into ourselves, it doesn't always seem that this is the gateway to the eternal. We look, you know what Lily Tomlin said, I always knew I wanted to be somebody, but I guess I should have been more specific. <laughs> and I remember I first went to the Insight Meditation Society for a, it was a 10-day retreat, and they had a sign-up which said, self-knowledge is not good news, <laughs> you know. So, you know, we, all the teachings, every tradition says, look within. And it sometimes seems like the last place. We have a sense of what I want, what I'm longing for is out there. It's down the road. And it's important to see that, that we don't look in the mirror most moments. Most of the time we're looking towards someone else or something else out there to satisfy us. We're fixated outwardly. We live in a story about ourselves, the kind of person we are and how we look and what we want to look in others' eyes, and then we look towards others. Then we come to the wisdom traditions that have this central inquiry, which really is, who am I? We start checking, are we this body? And this body's part of what we are, but are we this body? 
Are we a product of nervous system and thoughts and feelings? Is that all we are? It's just a product of that? Or of our genetic heritage? Are, are we an expression of consciousness itself? A spark of the divine? A reflection of the universal heart-mind? So there's this, this inquiry in every tradition. You know, what are we, Really? There was a Korean Zen teacher who came to IMS at the end of one of the early three-month retreats. And this was years before I ever went to IMS. But I heard the story. So here they had been spending three months doing these practices that you're doing here, which is, you know, mindfulness of the sensations in the body and mindfulness of the breath and watching the emotions and trying to be with it, not react to it, all that they've been doing. So he comes and he's asked to give a little speech. And he gets up there and he says, he told them that all the practices they were doing were a waste of time. (laughs) He said, there's only one practice that's worthwhile. And then he banged his Zen staff and he pointed to himself and he said, the only worthwhile, the only worthwhile practice to ask, what is this? What is this? What is this? You know, what is this essence right here that's listening What happens when we start asking, what is listening? What is really looking out through these eyes? Ramana Maharshi Maharshi used self-inquiry almost exclusively. Who am I? This is what it means to look into Nachiketa's mirror. Then whatever arises, these passing thoughts, these passing feelings, you know, what's aware of all this? So, the Buddhist, in the Buddhist tradition, the fixation on the stories, the fixation on the passing thoughts, obscures the radiance of our natural wholeness. When we're fixated, we cannot experience our wholeness. So looking into the mirror is a way of deconstructing the small self-identity. It doesn't mean that we don't still have an awareness of what's going on in day-to-day living and we don't have a sense of another and a self, but we are inhabiting a larger consciousness. We can sense what comes and goes and we can sense the timeless. And this is what the Buddha did under the Bodhi tree. He sensed what came and went and he looked into his own mind to sense the radiance of timeless awareness. Srinur Sargadatta says, when the mind is momentarily free from its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. If you do not disturb this quiet and stay in it, you find that it is permeated with a light and love you have never known and yet you recognize it at once as your own true nature. There's nothing more vast. There's nothing more mysterious. There's nothing more loving than your own nature. If it's not the one that's right here attending, it doesn't exist. You are the universe waking up to awareness. So... We'll practice this last boon in a few moments. But just to say that in the face of living and dying, this is our refuge. When we realize and trust this timeless awareness, when we know it's home, then we can celebrate the different play of sensations and feelings and thoughts and the life that arises and passes. We can celebrate it. We can sense its beauty and its sorrow. And we have space for it because we know our true home. So tonight really what we're exploring is Lord Yama, the impermanence, the out-of-control experience that every one of us knows, this groundlessness. How do we face that and find our truth, our love, our freedom? And the three boons, forgiving, 
just letting go of blame, awakening our longing, inhabiting it, and then looking into our own awareness to see who's here. So now I'd like to tell you the end of the story of Nachiketa, which I really like. You see a young man bowing to Lord Yama a final time, totally at peace. And then, as if by magic, the landscape of the kingdom of death changes to spring rice fields of his native India. And in this last secret, a last secret is revealed to him that death and birth are not separate. Renewal comes by dying. When we have faced death and aloneness, when we've realized the formless, we are unafraid to live and life flowers under our feet. Everywhere we go becomes holy ground. Nachiketa knew this in his heart and walked off towards his home to embrace his father and start a new life. I think the ending is important because we can very easily think, oh, it's realizing emptiness and formlessness and and kind of like space out into that and then not honor this ever-creative existence this mysterious existence that's just bursting into form moment by moment. So this is about love and emptiness, realizing the formless and celebrating the form. So let's do our final, the final boon together, just sitting for a moment, and then we'll close. And this is the boon of really looking into the mirror, looking into our own awareness. And we begin by arriving as we always do in this pause and just honestly connecting with what's happening. Always starting with what's right here. So relax a little into what's happening. Just let your shoulders relax. Soften your hands. Soften the belly. So you feel yourself sitting here, breathing. Let your senses be awake. You might notice the sounds. Listening. with that same receptivity, the sensations that are here. And receiving whatever emotions or mood is here. Sensing the inner weather, feelings in the heart. And in addition to this play of phenomena of sounds and sensations and feelings, to be aware of the background presence itself. This alert inner stillness that knows. Sense the inner space of awareness. That's vast, open, wakeful. You can notice the sounds and the silence that's listening. You can notice the sensations and the stillness that's aware. That everything you experience is occurring in a vast openness.
this ocean of being, timeless, always already here, the source of being. This final gift on the spiritual path of looking into awareness and realizing our true nature, our home. I'll close with uh, the words of Havis. One day the sun admitted, I am just a shadow. I wish I could show you the infinite incandescence that had cast my brilliant image. I wish I could show you, when you are lonely or in darkness, the astonishing light of your own being. Namaste. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much.